This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, and my guest today is Mary Newberger, no relation to co-host Joe Newberger, uh, who is a professor in the Department of History here at UT Austin, where she specializes in the history of Southeastern Europe, particularly Bulgaria. Welcome to the studio. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Before we got started, we were talking a little bit about the difference between Southeastern Europe and the Balkans, which is the term people normally use when they describe this area. Can you sort of define for us geographically what, where we're talking about when we talk about the Balkans? Well, when we talk about the Balkans, usually it includes modern-day Greece, the former Yugoslavia, which is now seven countries. It includes Albania, it includes Bulgaria, it includes parts of Turkey, and it includes Romania. Now, Romania can be included or not. Usually north of the Danube is not in the Balkans, but for historians, usually they include the areas that were under Ottoman rule historically as part of the Balkans. So that would include Romania and even parts of what were Hungary for many centuries. So Transylvania, for example. Ah, uh, yes, Transylvania, which we brought up in a previous episode. But the term Balkans actually is Southeastern Europe and Balkans are the same. Sometimes people use the term Southeastern Europe instead because it's because many people don't know what Balkans are. As a term, they might get it confused with Baltics. Also, there's been actually some academic work on the term Balkan and how it's actually considered derogatory by a lot of people Interesting. because of the term Balkanize. Uh, yes. And it's become derogatory in kind of more recent political writings. And so many of the countries in the Balkans actually don't like the term Balkan to refer to themselves. Interesting. Yeah. So it's become kind of a something that's been debated and kicked around in academia. Wow. So our subject today is going to be uh, Ottoman rule in the Balkans and after. So my first question is, when did the Ottomans come to this region, to southeastern Europe, and who did they take over from? So the Ottoman Empire expanded into southeastern Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries. So it depends on which part of the Balkans you're in. And many areas they conquered and then lost, conquered and then lost. So, you know, it's hard to kind of pin down a date. But essentially, people talk about 500 years of Ottoman rule in the Balkans from the 14th to the 19th century or from the 15th to the 20th century, depending on which part of the Balkans you're talking about. So it's 500 years. Prior to that, you had Byzantine rule um, in much of the Balkans competing with other Orthodox Christian medieval kingdoms. And so you had kind of changing territorial lines between Orthodox states. But they were really in disarray by the time the Ottomans moved in, and so in many ways they were moving into a power vacuum. And they moved in through alliances and actually intermarried with Christians. I mean, many people talk about conquest as a time of holy war. Well, actually, many historians looking at the period in detail have said, no, this was not a holy war. This was a frontier kind of situation in which there were all kinds of side switching and conversions and intermarriages. And so this was not at all a holy war. The Ottomans were invited into the Balkans by many of the Christian elites that were there at the time. So it was a very unstable period and the Ottomans 
were viewed as a, a stabilizing force, as security? Yes. So people essentially decided to work for the Balkan, or sorry, for the Ottoman rulers in exchange for security, for weapons, for supplies. They became part of the Ottoman militias, and they did bring stability to the region. So how did life in this region change under uh, Ottoman rule? It's still known as a, you know, the heartland of Orthodox Christianity, Southeastern Europe and, and Russia. So, you know, the demographic changes that we saw elsewhere in Anatolia, did they take place in, in Southeastern Europe as well, or were they left to their own? I mean, it's a long and complex period because we're talking about 500 years. But for the most part, the local populations remained in place and even thrived. And so you don't have the decimation of local populations. You do have decimation of certain social classes. So, for example, the nobility in many of the Orthodox Christian core states like Serbia, Bulgaria, Macedonia, the nobility eventually were taken out. So there was initially alliances and then they were decimated. But the peasant and other kinds of towns populations remained. But one of the things that did change is you have the introduction of Islamic populations into the region, both through migration of administrative and military elites and through conversion of local populations to Islam. And there were some concentrated areas of this, for example, Bosnia, what is today Albania and parts of Macedonia, and also southern Bulgaria. So you have these local populations. So not only do you have Turkish-speaking populations coming from Anatolia, you have local populations, Slavic or Albanian-speaking populations, that converted in mass to Islam and remained and remain Muslim to this day. You also had an influx of Jewish populations, mostly Sephardi Jews that were expelled from Spain after 1492 that concentrated in cities throughout the Balkans. So that element was added too. And they were offered um, religious tolerance there where they could not find it in Western Europe at the time. Right. So because the Ottomans were tolerant to other peoples of the book, so Jews and Christians, these populations were allowed to maintain their religions. There was really no forcible conversion except for in the case of the Dev Shirme, which was a very specific institution that lasted from roughly the 14th to the 17th century in which um, something like they've estimated over that whole period of centuries, something like two to 300,000 Christian boys of a certain age, seven to 10 years old, were gathered from various villages, the best and the brightest, taken to Istanbul, converted to Islam. So this was the forced conversion. But they were also educated in Persian, Arabic, Ottoman, and they were taught, you know, the art of war and administration, and they became the Ottoman elite, actually these boys. So they were the Janissary Corps, but they also became Grand Viziers and other kinds of titles within the administration. So we've talked a bit about the, the Ottoman Empire in a few episodes, and I realize that we've never quite covered uh, the millet system, which was a sort of unique innovation. Could you touch on that? Yes, the term millet means community or nation, actually, in modern Turkish. But at the time, it meant confessional community or religious community. So there was the Muslim millet, there was the Orthodox Christian millet, which they actually called the Rum millet, like Rome, right? because of Byzantine. Byzantines called themselves Romans, essentially. Um, and so you had a millet for each religion. 
So the Jewish community had a millet, the Orthodox Christian community had, had a millet, the Armenians had a separate Orthodox millet, um, and the Muslims were considered a separate millet. And essentially what that meant was that each community was ruled by the religious leaders of their community. And each religious community had a representative in Istanbul. Now, of course, for the Muslim millet, this was the rule of the land. I mean, Islamic law was the rule of the state. But for these other religions, they were almost like states within a state, but not with autonomous territory, so extraterritorial. So within your own village, within your own neighborhood, if you were in a larger city, you went to the religious officials of your religion. You paid taxes through them. If you were going to school, you went to schools set up by them. They even had their own court systems. So in cases, for example, where there might have been a dispute between a Muslim and a Christian, then yes, you had to go to the Islamic courts. But if it were anything having to do just with in the Christian community or Jewish community, for example, you would go to the courts of your community. Now, the millet system, a lot of historians later kind of looking at it in detail said, well, it wasn't really a system to the extent that maybe we thought it was. Yes, all of these communities had representation in Istanbul, but it seems to have been much more localized than we thought. It wasn't very centralized. But that also makes sense with the way the Ottomans ran things. There was a lot of local autonomies. There was a lot of sort of patchworks of sovereignties. And so this was one of them. And it allowed for a lot of tolerance for these groups. It allowed them to maintain a kind of cultural autonomy. Um, and so it speaks to the general autonomy that the Ottomans, the kinds of tolerance the Ottomans afforded these populations in the Balkans. And in many ways, you know, the reason I think this patchwork of cultures survived in the Balkans was because of systems like the Millet system. Okay, so uh, we have this patchwork of autonomy, and the empire, even at its height, was rather decentralized. And really, when we think of the Ottoman Empire beginning to break apart, the story starts in the Balkans. Um, so what forces led to that, and, and what changes did that have on southeastern Europe? So the discussion of Ottoman decline is quite extensive. Actually, a lot of Ottomanists have spent a lot of time writing, I think almost too much time writing about decline, even tracing it back, you know, to the 17th century. And so there are many different kinds of institutional issues one can talk about. But looking specifically at Southeastern Europe, at the issues that you know, brought about the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in Southeastern Europe in the 19th century, because this was the first place for it to really lose massive territories and in many ways hasten its decline and death. Um, it really had to do with, on the one hand, the rise of Europe as a viable power, Europe as a challenge to Ottoman rule, and the nation state as a new political model that was attractive to small elites in the Balkans, um, who looked to Europe as a model, who were educated in many cases in Europe, and who discovered the idea of nationalism in Europe and began to think of themselves as nations, as secular nations. Um, in some cases, this grew out of millet autonomies. There was already autonomies that people were building upon and sort of taking those autonomies and giving them nationalist meaning. But in other ways, nationalism cut across the lines of the millet. So in other words, within the Orthodox millet, the Greeks 
were dominating that millet by the 18th century, mm-hmm. you know, even on the local level. And Romania, this actually caused Romanians and Bulgarians to want out. And so actually it was language and not religion that became the impetus for their nationalisms. So by the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire was unstable in many ways in the Balkans for a variety of reasons, but the rise of nationalist movements and specific uprisings that happened in the 19th century created a lot of attention, drew a lot of attention from Europe. And so although these uprisings were no more powerful than uprisings, say, elsewhere in Europe, like Poland, or elsewhere in the Middle East in the same period, there was a lot of attention because these were Christians who were under Islamic rule and who were being, in many cases, slaughtered in reprisals after the uprisings. In many cases, these uprisings um, included the killing of Muslim civilians, for example, or military um, officers. And so as reprisal, the Ottomans came in and slaughtered, in many cases, whole villages. Europe was very concerned. The United States was even concerned at that time. It drew a lot of attention from the outside, and there were a series of interventions on behalf of these Balkan peoples, even though in reality, these were small elite minorities who wanted to create nation states at the time, you know, that they would essentially be leaders of personally. Um, But so these nationalist movements, in combination with this situation of you know, these groups being Christian under Islamic rule, Europe being willing to intervene, and by Europe I also mean Russia, um, you have a situation that led to the breaking off piece by piece of territories from Ottoman rule, first in various kinds of autonomous arrangements, and eventually independent arrangements. So you have an autonomous Serbia, you have an independent Greece, you have Romania, piece by piece, these various entities breaking off. Um, Under the, you sort of, I feel like, you know, in a sense, it was with this justification of nationalism and sovereignty and self-determination, but in reality, these were small elite movements at the time with a lot of European backing behind them because of the particular geopolitical situation. Right. And I think that's an important point you raise, which is that a lot of this is about infighting within the Christian community, just as much as it was about trying to get out from under the yoke of Islam. Uh, As these pieces of territory break away and assume autonomy or independence, this has sort of been the history of Southeastern Europe since then, which is the alignment, realignment and breaking apart. This is, in fact, what the term balkanization we were talking about at the beginning means. Did this legacy of the 500 years of Ottoman rule, has that contributed to this? Is this something new? Or was this something that was always there um, in Southeastern Europe, that people just sort of lived in small autonomous clusters and not really did very well under large empires? Um, It's complicated, but it's interesting. A lot of... uh, people who look at the Balkans within a global context and look at Balkan nationalism, who look at various manifestations of that, the Balkan wars, the more recent ones, or the 1912 and 13 ones, and they look at what they see as particularly violent tendencies within Balkan nationalism, and they tend to blame it on the Ottomans. So in other words, the areas of Southeastern Europe that were under Ottoman rule are more backwards and therefore more barbaric and violent. And you find this everywhere, kind of shockingly, 
in popular and even academic writings. Mm-hmm. But there's also been a big response to this by academics who actually have said, no, the recent Balkan wars that we're seeing, for example, are a result of the fact that there was tolerance for so long in that area that we still have intermixed communities, whereas in other parts of Europe, in many ways, those kind of communities are long gone, have either been assimilated or expelled. And so actually this untangling of the complexity of the Ottoman landscape, which has happened over the course of the 19th and 20th century, and which has happened as a result of population exchanges, expulsions, war, um, people fleeing, people being killed, these kinds of things, which are not unusual. I mean, yes, the Balkans are violent, but compared to what? I mean, I think we don't have to go very far back in European history to see much larger body counts in the heart of Europe, right? So it's always like violent compared to what? But um, this landscape of violence in 19th and especially 20th century Balkans is less a result of the Ottoman legacy and more a result of the penetration of Western ideas and influences, which were not a good fit for that region. The region was so complex that even within, say, the Orthodox Slavic-speaking communities, it wasn't so clear where one nation ended and the other began. This is why you have entities like Yugoslavia existing because the Serbs and Croats and Bosnian Muslims all spoke the same language. So why not have a nation called Yugoslavia, which means South Slav? Mm. But they're three different religions. So does religion define nation or does language? Well, they tried to have it be language. In the end, it didn't work because these ethnicities were also based in religious identities. So it didn't work there. But in Albania, for example, where you also have three different religions and one language, it did work. Albanianness is a language-based identity. And so the complexity of sort of the landscape of language and religion made it very much up in the air where one state, nation state, should begin and where the next should end. So this caused a lot of fighting over the spoils of the Ottoman Empire. And so this was more, I mean, this sort of collapse of the Ottoman Empire with Europe overseeing it and very much willing to intervene, European powers playing smaller powers off of each other, created a real mess. Um, And that, in many ways, was behind the violence, not some sort of primordial Ottoman legacy of, you know, violence or hatred. Instead, what there was was a legacy of coexistence but that didn't meld well with the European nation-state model. Interesting. Well, that's uh, a great perspective, I think, and a, and a great introduction to Southeastern Europe. Um, we're just about out of time, but I'd like to thank you for being with us, and uh, we'll see you next time. And remember, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15minutehistory. That's the numerals 15minutehistory. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.